So this week, we decided to start something with our news team. Because we report so much every week, but we never get a chance to talk about it. So we thought it would be great if every week we got together with Jasmine Weber, our news editor, and reporters Hakeem Bashara and Valentina Delicia to talk about the stories that are important to us, as well as a couple of tidbits that don't always get into the stories themselves. So let's get started this week, which is a particularly long week because, frankly, there's a lot going on. Expect future episodes to be roughly around 20 minutes. At least that's the plan. Let's get started. I have Jasmine Weber, our news editor. Hey, Jasmine. Hello. And as well as we're joined by Hakeem Bashara and Valentina Delicia, both of our staff reporters. Hey, you two. Hi. Hi, great to be here. So we're just going to start getting into the stories. I mean, obviously, we all know what happened this month that is such a big deal, which was the inauguration. But in terms of what we're covering, a topic that people just could not stop talking about were the Bernie memes, or I should say sharing. Hakeem, you did that story, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on uh, Bernie memes. I mean, what have we been learning? It's amazing. I think they're still circulating out there. People couldn't get enough of them. Uh, the demand was so high, and, and the production of uh, memes was so high that we had to put out two articles about it. And um, you know, Harag, that we take uh, memes very seriously as indicators for public opinion. So it was fascinating to see uh, what people have come up with. And we also noticed a strand of art historical memes that placed Bernie into famous artworks from Da Vinci's uh, Last Supper to Edward Hopper's Nighthawks. You could see him in many famous artworks. But we also have to mention Jasmine's uh, work, if you want to talk about that, Jasmine, that became viral on the internet. That's right. Jasmine's Syrah take on the Bernie meme was everywhere during that time. Jasmine. I think it was definitely a really interesting example of how quickly and how widely things can circulate on the internet. So for those of you who may not have seen I inserted Bernie into kind of the background or like the middle of the scene of Syrah's famous pointillist depiction of a park, um, a very busy park. And what's interesting to me is that so many people were sharing it. It got included in an article in the New York Times. It was actually mentioned in the LA Times arts newsletter um, last week. But what's really interesting to me is I saw actually a few theories about how I had inserted it. One person thought that it must have been a really good AI program. It was <laughs> oh, actually wow. a five-minute Photoshop. <laughs> um, but I think it just really speaks to the fact that memes have become more advanced than ever. If people think that people are developing advanced AI to insert Bernie into different art historical scenes. Well, it speaks um, to your Photoshop skills, Jasmine, because <laughs> I saw some really bad Photoshops out there as well. I agree. There were so many bad ones. <laughs> I definitely think that um, the art history ones were some of the most popular, actually, not just among hyperallergic readers, but in general, what I was seeing circulating on Twitter Another another one that we created exclusively for hyperallergic was inserted into the scream. 
But so I think that the Bernie meme really took on a life of its own with people making like crocheted versions, Bernie selling shirts with his likeness on it and donating the proceeds and ended up raising over $1.5 million for a local Vermont charity focused what? on food instability. $1.5 million? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Um, and then, of course, the other big part of the Bernie story is the fact that the mittens that he was wearing were created by a constituent of his who made recycled mittens from old sweaters. And the demand was so high, but she actually confirmed that she will not be making any more. She only makes them for friends and family now. I have to admit, I was one of the people who emailed her going, where can I get these mittens? And I guess I was one of the tens of thousands of people that she ended up ignoring, but they were so adorable. So now I want to ask all of you why you think that took off so much. Like, what is it about that image? And I mean, these are obviously our personal opinions. I mean, I'll start with mine, but I think it's partly not only the fact that people sort of find you know, Bernie to be this sort of adorable grandpa figure, but it was also kind of nice to see someone sort of thumb their nose at this kind of the formality of the inauguration and kind of looked normal for lack of a better world. You know, I know a lot of people were talking about the return of fashion to the white house and a little bit of this, but I, I don't know. I mean, I always thought that was interesting, but I actually prefer this kind of thing. And I think this is one of the folksy elements that I, I, I thought actually made the White House seem much more, or at least the event, seem much more personal. And uh, I don't know, maybe a little bit more everyday and not so high fashion or anything like that. Any other thoughts? I agree. I think it goes even beyond that. I think there's a subversive element in his appearance. It's like Bernie against the system here, uh, but Bernie going against the norm. So it's beyond just a cute, grumpy uncle with mittens. It's someone who doesn't give an F. I agree that there was something particularly apathetic about the image and about his stance, that folding chair that kind of looks like a, like a lawn chair someone might be sitting on during a garage sale, kind of looking out, not, not caring so much. Although I did see some Twitter users point out that, you know, he's an older man and he was probably freezing. And that's what accounts for this, you know, stance where he was crossing his arms um, that was so widely circulated. He was kind of just trying to keep warm. Yeah, that's kind of how I read the image was mostly just that the cameras caught him at a moment where he's kind of cozied up. But I do think that the contrast of his coat to like all of the super chic pea coats that everyone was wearing is a really interesting and nice visual. But I do think that like some of the the really hot takes on Twitter about how Bernie was like refusing to perform emotional labor. Some people were in favor of it. Some people weren't. I was like, he's probably just cold. Um, and like, we all, we all have our moments. And I think like the fact that his got captured on film, I'm so happy that it did because I think it brought a lot of people, a lot of joy, but I do think that like what you said, Valentina about like him being an old man who just like was outside in the freezing cold is probably like what really is underlying the shot for me. Yeah, and I love that he brought those mittens. I mean, just to have that personal connection to, like, his own state, I thought was really lovely. And, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know what people want from Bernie, but, you know, it's like clearly he sort of represents something that we all kind of want. But I also love that he brought an envelope with him. I know some of you probably saw that, too. Um, and people were making the joke that it was clearly not the only thing he was doing that day. So he was probably going to the post office afterwards or something. <laughs> 
And I just, yeah. loved, like, even that, it just felt very human. Like anybody who has had a grandparent in their life knows this is the kind of, you know, they don't give an F and they just sort of like do their thing and, and you have to work around them a little bit. And it had a little bit of that energy too. So, which I thought was really great. So I know we did a whole um, series of articles about the insurrection that happened at the Capitol. Jasmine, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about sort of generally what was going on and, and what did we learn from the coverage? So we were lucky enough to get a number of really striking shots from the writer and journalist Bucky Turco. So Bucky was actually at the Capitol insurrection, and he was a big part of helping document everything that was going on. It was really difficult to find images in general, even for those of us who watched the news on the day of the insurrection, a lot of the videos and, and photos that they had that day were really lackluster. It was really hard to track down journalists who had been able to really get in the mix of things, um, and he was able to do that. And so I think that for those of you who might not have seen, I would really recommend that you check out the photo essay by Hrag, as well as the articles by Valentina and Hakim, really help create an archive of the chaos that went on that day. Yeah, I think it's, uh, that's a, it's, chaos is the right word. And just to be clear, they were Bucky's photos, but I did organize them with him and interviewed him for that article. And I think one of the things that was really uh surprising, I guess, he that he mentions in the article is the fact that he just happened to go, thought he would be kind of something to cover. And Bucky is known for sort of going to these types of events and sort of just checking them out and reporting on them, which he normally does. And then he found himself in the midst of this insurrection, which is really, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what to think of that, but I think it was really, it was very telling. So now one of the stories that also came out after that was the question of What's going to happen now? And I think people were kind of wondering in terms of uh, damage to the artwork. It doesn't appear that there was any significant damage from what I've read, unless anyone can correct me about that. But, you know, I think it really was sort of this passage that people sort of like this really pristine, important symbol of American democracy was violated. And I think there's definitely, um, you know, a, a little bit of, of that in the images that we were seeing. Does anyone have any more thoughts on that before we uh, continue on to talk a little bit about Melania Trump and her sculpture in Slovenia? Yeah, actually, Harag, there was something that you mentioned in the midst of when we were, you know, figuring out how to cover everything that was going on that I thought was really interesting, which is how the circulation of images of um, monuments bearing Confederacy flags or insignia is a form of vandalism in and of itself. Of course, we know that there was a bust of uh, U.S. President Zachary Taylor that was actually vandalized. It was smeared in red liquid that might be blood by one of the domestic terrorists that stormed the Capitol. But then there were other pictures circulating of monuments, you know, outfitted with a Make America Great Again cap or, or really offensive Nazi insignia and this kind of thing. And I remember we had a really interesting conversation about how those symbols of American democracy or figures that may not be symbols of democracy to us, but that represent definitely um, something of America in the public eye are changed and fade away uh, with the circulation of those images. No, I think that's a that's a really good point. I mean, I think one thing about uh, maybe the shift into the digital world that people don't often think about is when images circulate, that in itself becomes a type of form of reality. You know, maybe that's not the exact word, but it's, you know, if you, if you, 
even if you Photoshop an image that's, say, of the statue or something, you smear blood, it's the fact that it circulates. It's not just whoever's there, but the fact that that image will now sort of be impressed on people's minds, and it creates a whole different perception, which I think is very different from the way we often saw vandalism before, because they were like, they were site-specific. You know, a news reporter might come take a photo, might end up in the paper or something like this. And often they wouldn't even reproduce that so not so as not to encourage new vandalism. But now the fact that everyone is, you know, a photographer and everyone has a camera and a video camera in their pocket, it really does create a different environment for the circulation of these images. And as you saw, most of the way they found these people is through their own images. So these are people who didn't right. even think they were doing anything wrong, which is, it just blows my mind a little bit. I wonder if anyone has any other thoughts before we continue on. I also want to mention a, a, a rapid response painted made by uh, Detroit-based street artist Sean Perkins, also known as SP The Plug, who gave us permission to use his painting on the day of the mob attack. And the painting shows QAnon supporters and Trump supporters carrying Confederate flags and so on, arriving to the Capitol in a limousine and being greeted by the police, the Capitol Police, on a red carpet. And that was a painting that uh, Perkins made on that day to protest the lax treatment of uh, Trump supporters uh, during that shocking event. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, what a tragic day. So one of the other stories we did that same week was about Melania Trump and the sculpture of her in Slovenia, which was created by artist Brad Downey, who's a US artist based in Berlin. And this sculpture that was created a few years ago, believe it or not, last year went up in flames on the 4th of July. Um, surprise, surprise. And the work is uh, close to uh, Melania Trump's hometown. And uh, he since he I mean, they don't know who burned it. The artist is dying to know why the person burned it, whether it was a joke, whether it was some political action or something. But it's frankly not clear. But in its place, he's created a bronze sculpture uh, of the work. And the work was done by a local craftsperson um, who was commissioned by the artist to create this. And he and he sort of told us that this person was around the age of someone who would have known Melania. But the part that I found the most interesting was not only the fact that this sculpture, I mean, which I think we could describe as folksy. Um, you know, that's probably the best word because it's sort of a little mangled, you know, it's sort of like, you. I don't know if you'd recognize Melania if you saw... <laughs> If you saw her, yeah. the, the label certainly says it is Melania. But also the fact that he mentioned that people in Slovenia really don't have warm feelings towards Melania, unlike like uh, Slavo Zizek and others who are Slovenian and have maintained ties. But Brad Downey mentioned the fact that Melania's done kind of the utmost to sort of you know, reject or at least not connect to Slovenia. And of course, as we know, her parents immigrated to the U.S. using, of course, chain migration, the stuff that Trump always loved uh, to say he hated. But of course, his in-laws showed up using the exact same laws that he decries. But I just thought it was an interesting sort of symbol of Melania Trump and her sort of legacy. Can we call it that? I don't even know what to call it because I'm not quite sure what her legacy is, to be quite honest. Anyone have any thoughts about the sculpture? Her legacy is be best, Tarak. I'm just reminding you. <laughs> Thank you. That's true. That's true. There we are. Be best. Whatever that means. I definitely think that the saga of the the sculpture being burned and then displayed again really kind of 
in this low key manner during the pandemic when a lot of art organizations were closed in New York City definitely encapsulates the really strange relationship that the first lady had with the American public. She was so low key and every time she did make headlines, it was for doing something truly horrible. That's so like true. <laughs> yeah. The only times that she made headlines were for doing things like wearing the I really don't care jacket. Also when she was recorded saying fuck Christmas, um how do people expect me to do anything about the kids in cages, things like that. But other than that, we really never heard from her, which is a big contrast from what the case was with Michelle Obama who was very often talked about for her like healthy lunch programs and then also even when we think about Dr. Jill Biden already having made a ton of headlines for the controversy surrounding her requesting to be called by her her title yeah the the doctor title the and the controversy around that wow that that was quite a thing um that was going around any thoughts on that i mean i mean i know that's a little off off uh our coverage, but I'm just curious if anyone had any thoughts on that or else we'll just keep moving on. I can't believe the Wall Street Journal published that. Or maybe I can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so if you want to give people context, it was an op-ed that was calling her out for using the title. Is that correct? Yes. It was um, saying essentially that she sounded pretentious for referring to herself as Dr. Jill Biden rather than just as Jill Biden. And it created a whole firestorm of suddenly people on Twitter and elsewhere suddenly started putting doctor in their Twitter names and things like that, particularly women who were saying that in most cases, a white man would never be asked to not refer to himself as doctor and no one would really bat an eye. Well, I do think it's significant it came out in a newspaper because I think it also responds to newspapers, um, their guidelines where they don't use doctor unless someone is in a medical profession. So it may, I mean, just to give a little bit of context, I agree the whole article was kind of mean and sort of frankly unnecessary. But I do think like some people may not have that context where newspapers don't normally use doctor. Um, so I only, I'm going to only assume this is obviously a very kind reading, but uh, well, I'll just assume that. So now we did another story about this Trump staffers taking artworks home. Hakeem, what was that all about? I didn't quite understand what was going on until I read your story. Yeah, for a moment, it looked like uh, Trump aides, including Peter Navarro and the wife of Mark Meadows, his chief chief of staff. These are all like senior uh, White House officials have been taking, taking home artwork from the White House without permission. And people wondered if these items belong to the public. For instance, Navarro took home this framed picture of uh, Trump meeting with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. And that, that, that was very interesting to me because Navarro has written a few books against China and China's uh, illegitimate uh, use of its uh, military and economic power in the world. He's like a huge adversary of China. And out of all the artwork he could take, he took a picture of him. I mean, the picture includes him at the edge of the table at the far right corner. A far right is, is uh, not an inten intentional pun, but that's uh, how he appears in the photo. Meeting with the Chinese president. And uh, Mark Meadows' wife, I th Debbie Meadows, took home a stuffed bird. And there were images, also footage of uh, White House aides 
taken out a bust of Abraham Lincoln out of uh, the White House, the Oval Office, actually. So what was the final explanation? Well, the White House Historical Association did not respond to our request for comment, but they did issue a statement on Twitter saying that some of these objects were personal and that the staff has had any, every right to take it home. And others, like uh, the Lincoln bust, uh, were borrowed from the Smithsonian or other art collections in D.C. for the White House during Trump's term, which is uh, a tradition in Washington. Staffers in the White House are allowed to borrow artwork to decorate their offices with. And uh, the claim is that these um, artworks are being returned to the collections. Mm-hmm. We haven't heard uh, any new developments on that. It seems like um, it was more or less legitimate. Yeah, interesting, that story that sort of evolved. But then there was another story around that time, this one uh, to do with the Ohio Arts Board member. Wow. Jasmine, do you want to fill us in a little bit about what was going on there? I mean, that's quite a story. So Susan Allen Block, who was a member of the Ohio Arts Council Board, was forced to resign after she made a number of comments about the Capitol attack. Um, where she called for no peace and no concession. She also used a number of derogatory phrases towards, at the time, the president-elect, vice president-elect Kamala Harris. She called her a whore. She also called Joe Biden an illegitimate president, which, of course, we see frequently among QAnon supporters and other Trump loyalists um, who refuse to believe that the election was carried out fairly. So, Hakeem, if you want to give a bit more background context as you are the one who dug into the story and did the reporting for us, I think that would be helpful for our readers. Yes, it appears that um, Block's uh, incendiary and, um, frankly, racist comments. You go years back, for instance, when there was a fire at the Notre Dame Church in in, uh, Paris, she circulated uh, uh, rumors that the fire was set by by a Muslim arsonist, for example. And um, a large number of artists and art organizations in Ohio demanded her resignation, immediate resignation. Uh, Mark Duane, the governor of Ohio, uh, eventually accepted her resignation. She belongs also to a family that owns a local newspaper and uh, staffers at the newspaper, it's called the, the, the Blade, have announced a strike because they claim that, that there have been editorial intervention in their pieces, skewing them more towards uh, Trump and the Trump administration, censoring uh, yeah. their criticism of the administration. Well, we should also mention Toledo Blade is a major newspaper there, but it's also the fact that they also own the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which, as we know, has been having a lot of issues in the last few years, particularly around around race. And uh, I think there was even one case of a journalist not being allowed to cover something because they thought that they might be... Uh, I don't know, biased or something. And I think the reality was that they were black or something like that should not be seen as a form of bias. But I do I do want people to sort of look at that story too, because her, her statement in all caps, that's something I think, Jasmine, you forgot to mention, <laughs> which I think is quite notable. Yeah. She reads yeah. statements in all caps. And I just want to kind of read how crazy it sounds because it says, no peace, no unity, no concession, no legitimacy to a stolen election. There are, and of course, there are a lot of typos here. There are 70 million Trump supporters 
who will not fall in line. There will be no quote-unquote healing. We will drag this illegitimate president, his whore VP, and all of the Democrats through the same shit they dragged President Trump and his supporters through for the last five years. I'm not quite sure why it's five years, but um, the whole thing is just, I mean, drag this illegitimate president. I mean, around the time of the, of the um, I mean, this is January 7th, right? You know, this, this is not exactly like it was something in the far distant past. I mean, it's, it's pretty shocking. Uh, so, but she's gone, right? Yeah. And um, since then, she deleted and deactivated her Facebook and Twitter account. But people caught scre- screenshots of these uh, terrible comments and circulated them on social media. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big thing here also is the fact that, uh, I mean, I can't imagine working at those papers, knowing who your boss is and knowing that this is the sort of the the politics that they espouse. It's it's all quite disturbing in my opinion. So let's move on to some other topics. One of which I think is uh, really, I mean, first let's start with the serious one, the vessel. Oof. Who wants to weigh in on that one? I mean, Heatherwick, the architecture firm, which has been getting a lot of attention in the last few years, were the designers of this, um, frankly, I would call disastrous. I don't know, what do other people call it? But this this public art stairway in the middle of the Hudson Yards boondoggle, um, the most luxury of luxury developments that got a lot of tax credits and, and opportunities. Um, Frankly, people, it's the third person killed themselves um, on the vessel. Now it's closed indefinitely. I think that what's happening with the vessel in terms of um, the lack of guardrails and really the lack of, really the lack of foresight as to what the vessel could become is honestly a tragedy. The entire vessel as a project has really highlighted so many instances of inequality in New York City and the way that wealthy developers are really able to game the system for their own benefit. But I think that the the way that the structure has been um, identified as a genuine public risk because of the low guardrails that people can easily jump over, which I would think that any accomplished or trained architect would know to look out for. I think it's really disappointing. And I hope that they keep it closed until they can resolve this because it's not going, this problem isn't going to go away. I mean, it's amazing to me that first there were issues of accessibility for those with mobility issues. And now we have this, I mean, it just seems like, it seems like, I mean, like you said, Jasmine, someone just didn't think this through. I mean, what a friggin' disaster. I mean, does anyone think they're going to tear it down? I mean, I personally hope they do, but what, does no. anyone think it they will? I don't think so. I don't. Yeah. Sadly, no. That's too much money in it. But I, I have to uh, note that I reached out to Thomas Heatherwick's studio asking, um, are you open to the idea of raising the barriers, which are just above waist high. And people have been warning against them for years, ever since this uh, stairway to hell opened. And I still haven't received a response from them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do feel like there has to be responsibility, you know, and I, do, I, I do wonder where the responsibility is. I mean, an architect, architect could say, oh, well, I did my job, it got approved, this is fine. 
But I don't know. I, I it, it really is disappointing uh, for me. And I mean, that whole Hudson Yard development, I mean, I don't know what to think of it. Anyone? I find it stressful. I mean, the, yeah. I visited only once and I, and I had trouble breathing. It was uh, stressful. The whole, the whole place there. I just don't think How it's very saying? nice looking either, honestly. I mean, I like the skyline from afar. It kind of looks sort of interesting but even then it's not really that notable and there's nothing in the skyline of the hudson yard development that i find significant um i don't know valentina jasmine have either of you had the opportunity to visit hudson yard i did i guess one of the things that bugs me the most is this aesthetics of consumerism the kind of shopping um and apartments and the 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 monotony of the aesthetics of it and how it doesn't really feel like a space for the public. You know, it feels like a space for the wealthy and really not a welcoming space. Certainly there's some things that we've covered with regards to Hudson Yards, a bit more problematic than other stories related to maybe spaces like the shed um, or the Heatherwick uh, structure. But just in general, I think the, I think that the Hudson Yard space is not, was not conceived with regular people in mind. And that's, that's really never going to go away unless they rethink it. Yeah, I think that, that that's a really good point. It's really a mall, honestly. Um, it's a mall with some housing attached to it, and then the shed, right? You know, with right, it, exactly. Its own little thing, absolutely. So now let's talk about something a little fun: the viral sink reviewer, Hakeem. You wrote this story. Now, I am so happy someone is taking the Museum of Modern Art's bathrooms to task. I didn't think it would be a TikTok sync reviewer, but here we are. Yes, I, I mean it's an, an anonymous uh, reviewer on uh, on TikTok who kind of invented a whole new genre of criticism or subgenre, maybe. He goes around New York City and reviews sinks at public uh, restrooms, like in Chelsea Market, the Rockefeller Center, and uh, one of the latest ones was at MoMA, and he didn't like them at all. Turns out that uh, Moma's new sinks have those combined uh, hand dryer uh, faucets that dry. You wash your hands and then you dry them at the same um, in the same device, and the dryers didn't actually work. The water flow was weak. But the way he, I think his style is also kind of a parody on art criticism, or maybe restaurant criticism. It sounded more like restaurant criticism, but it's hilarious. And he takes and he takes it so seriously, and he does it so eloquently. I recommend seeing watching the video, which is embedded in the article. I mean, I can only assume the person's a designer or an architect because the level of detail to sinks <laughs> is pretty funny. I mean, I, I th- though it reminds me a little bit about the old days of Tumblr when people would have like the most random Tumblr blogs about the most random things in the world, and so. I also love a little bit of that energy, which is which is really great. It's also amazing how popular uh, the account is. Last time I checked, it had more than seven hundred thousand um, followers on TikTok. The people are really into sinks these days. <laughs> that's that good point. I guess I guess there's uh, there's uh, he, he's definitely flush with followers or she. Um, <laughs> Ha ha, I know, I know. Nice. So now the now let's also talk about um, a couple of other little stories. MCA Chicago, anything to say about the layoffs? I mean, 11% of the staff was laid off at the museum, which is the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, I think we were all 
you know, shocked in part because the MCA Chicago had, you know, for a long time avoided these layoffs, although they did restructure their visitor experience department last summer by converting several part-time positions to full-time and thus uh, eliminating several part-time jobs. But they had avoided the kind of uh, pandemic-wide staff layoffs that we had seen in other museums until now. And I think you know, people are particularly upset. Um, workers at the museum have uh, said on social media and elsewhere um, that they feel that the museum is putting up a facade of inclusivity and equity that doesn't exactly match its hiring practices. The museum on its end told us that, you know, they avoided the layoffs, they got a 2 million PPP loan, and then when they were forced to close again in November, after already closing last spring, uh, the revenue shortfall just was something that they could not that they could not account for unless they made these staff cuts. But it's a really emotional story. And I definitely feel for the 41 workers who have lost their jobs at um, the MCA Chicago. Yeah, it's very sad. And then just one final story, the Iraqi Arch. Valentina, did you want to talk about that one? Yeah, so amidst all the local news we've been covering, I've turned my attention to two stories from Iraq. One of them is quite sad, the Taq Khazra, which is a 1,500-year-old structure from the Sasanian Empire that has the largest brick vault in the world, partially collapsed last month. UNESCO told me that four meters of the arch roof crumbled because of heavy rains in the region, and it seems that Iran's Ministry of Culture said that it's going to step in to help restore it. But I think what the story is really doing is shining a light on a larger issue of cultural heritage preservation in Iraq. I spoke to Liwan, which is an Iraqi NGO, and they described it as an emergency. And we've really seen critics come out on social media and decry the neglect of some monuments in Iraq due to, of course, decades of war, climate problems, as well as a major lack of funding for their restoration. Just add to that before we continue the next story, just for those who may not know, the arch is actually one of the only remaining visible structures from the Sasanian capital, Sesiphon, um, of the period. And also it's the largest brick span arch, um, you know, which is pretty significant in terms of the history of architecture. So just to give people a context of, of what we're talking about. Go ahead, Valentina. Another more positive story from Iraq is that the British artist Edmund Duval has donated nearly 2,000 books from an installation that he conceived for the 2019 Venice Biennale called the Library of Exile to the University of Mosul Library. So the University of Mosul Library, it had one of the largest collections in West Asia before it was partially destroyed by the Islamic State between 2014 and 2016, I believe. Of course, there's been many individuals and organizations working hard to restore the collection. One of them is Book Aid International, which is actually collaborating with Duval to help transport the books from his project to Mosul. But I thought this was just a story about, you know, a work of art like Duval's, which was conceived as a space of reflection on themes of displacement and loss and exile, taking on a completely new life by becoming part of this library that really has been decimated. So it was. It made me happy to report in that story, and it's great that the Vols project, which may be seen as quite a conceptual one, is now taking on this resourceful and productive life that's going to touch the experiences of so many people that use the library. And I just want to add to that for those who may not know, you know, this is probably the second major project that's done something for the libraries in Iraq. Years ago, uh, Wafa Bilal, who is an Iraqi American artist, also 
did his project called 168,01, which was a traveling exhibition that also appeared here in New York at MoMA PS1 in the larger Iraq show, where um, blank books were being replaced with art books that would then be sent to the library at the the art library at the University of Baghdad. So, you know, it's not the only project. It's great to see artists, architects, and others sort of doing a little bit of their part. And I just want to ask the team if there's anything else you want to add. I mean, this has been a very eventful month. I'll tell you one thing during the pandemic is it, there we really haven't had a lot of slow news days. So, um, you know, I just want to sort of thank the team for being on top of it. So thank you, all of you. Any last words, thoughts, wishes for the audience? I just wanted to plug my one of my recent pieces, and it's about the discovery of, of a new pigment of blue. It's called Yin Men, and it's the first chemically made uh, blue in 200 years. And it's so bright and vibrant. It's as blue as blue can be. Check it out. I think that what's really interesting about this pigment of blue is that once again, we're seeing an example of a new commercially available pigment that has really kind of taken the art world by storm and people are clamoring to get their hands on it. We saw this, of course, with the Vanta Black um, that Anish Kapoor controversially got sole rights to use as an artist. And then we also saw it with the new super vibrant, shocking pink that actually in its fine print said that you cannot sell this to Anish Kapoor and you must promise that you are not Anish Kapoor. So clearly <laughs> artists are constantly looking for new colors. Um, that's, and the I think what's, that's the best Anish Kapoor troll I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think what's really interesting about the fact that these new pigments are coming out is that they always tend to be kind of neon. In the case of the Vanta Black, it's just a super deep, intense black that absorbs any amount of light, the supposedly blackest black that exists. But I think that that's, that lends to why uh, Hakeem's article on this new pigment was so popular. Can I just add how much more exciting these colors sound than Pentone's colors of the year for last year, which were like sad gray and sad yellow. Agreed. Agreed. I, I thought that was a terrible choice for colors, honestly, by Pantone. And sort of, I think they were just going for some weird headlines or something. So I want to thank Jasmine Weber, Valentina Delicia, and Hakeem Bashara for joining me. My name is Hadag Bartanian. I'm the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperlogic. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to the news team for joining me in this episode. Music is Canone Finito by Lorenzo Seni from the album Scacco Mato, released last year on Warp Records. My name is Harag Bartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. <laughs>